0: Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com longform or use code longform at checkout. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink.
1: Hey, Aaron, before we uh, start the podcast, I was thinking we should tell people about the other podcast we did this summer.
0: I feel like I haven't gotten praised enough about this other (laughs) podcast, which tells me that not enough uh, people who listen to this podcast have listened. So, So what is the podcast? The show is called The Books That Changed
1: Us. It was part of By the Books, which was a literary festival that uh, MailChimp put on virtually. And uh, you and I had a whole series of conversations
0: with authors, many of whom have been on the show. That's right Krista Tippett, Wesley Lowry. Who else? Alex Marr, Saeed Jones, Hua
1: Xu, uh, Heather Haverleski, Anne Friedman, Amina So. We had uh, all
0: kinds of people come on and tell us about the books that uh, that changed their lives. Yeah, it's like the format is three questions about books. They're good questions. They're so open-ended that they could mean almost anything. And the interviews were really good. If you like this show, you're going to enjoy it. It's in all of the podcast stores you can imagine – it's called The Books That Changed Us. You'll see it says it's from MailChimp. Where 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 do you It's on the web.
1: Yep. It's on the web at MailChimp.com slash presents. And it was a pop-up thing. It was just uh, 11 conversations. They're short. They're like 20 minutes long. So if you got some time on your hands, which uh, I know you do, go check it out. The Books That Changed Us. But for now, here's this week's show. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linskim here with my co-hosts
0: Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff, gentlemen. Hello, are you guys together? We are. At, we're in the same physical location for the first time since the pandemic. Max and his family came and visited me. Thank you, Max. It's Aaron's birthday. Happy birthday, Aaron. Thank you. Oh, happy birthday, Aaron. Uh, who's on the show this week?
1: This week on the show, Claudia Rankin. She is a poet. She's an essayist. Uh, she's probably best known for her book Citizen. She's also written for the New York Times Magazine about Serena Williams. And then last year, she wrote this piece about asking men about their white male privilege. It was an incredible essay, and it uh, led her to do a whole book on that topic and related topics sort of about whiteness in America. The book is out this week. It's called Just Us, An American Conversation. And uh, it was was truly, it was
0: was an honor to talk to her. The show is brought to you, as always, by MailChimp. If you have been putting off starting an email newsletter, join the throng. Do it with MailChimp. They make it easy and they make this show possible. So it's a win-win. Thanks to MailChimp.
1: And now here's Max with Claudia Rankin. Claudia, welcome to, the, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for doing this.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: I've, uh, I've read your book uh, over the last several days, and I want to start with the title. The book is subtitled An American Conversation, and your last book was subtitled An American Lyric. And I want to understand what you intended with conversation.
2: Well, The Citizen and Don't Let Me Be Lonely are both books that are sort of episodic and try to create a lyrical, investigative inquiry into feelings. Just Us, for me, sort of moves a little bit away from the realm of feeling into the realm of encounter. So what does the encounter do to us? And it's not that this book doesn't include complicated feelings that are investigated, but it's really about what happens when you and I, you know, Max and Claudia get in a room and start talking about certain things. What are we doing inside that conversation? And what does a conversation mean to you and to me inside an America that is so segregated and racially divided? That is where we are in this book.
1: And w- was there a specific conversation that you wanted to have? Was there a specific kind of encounter that you were looking for?
2: Well, actually, my encounter with you. <laughs> I mean, I, I was really interested in talking to white men, and that's the first conversation in Just Us, Because I find that it's very easy for me to fall into conversations with white women with other people of color but white men tend to hold themselves apart and not the white men I know but the white men that I don't know are not people I tend to just fall into easy banter with i think there's a kind of distrust actually in terms of these encounters so my my first mission was to find some white men to talk to. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did. I I approached a few.
1: Yeah, I want to talk So the first, uh, the book starts with a poem, and then the first essay is about what you call liminal spaces and about encountering a bunch of white men in airplanes and airports. I want to talk about the first second, but just to back up quickly... There's an idea that I think you come back to in the book a bunch of times, which is that there's a kind of conversation that you want to have, which is um, messier and maybe murkier and certainly less comfortable and a conversation in which people might and can and probably would make mistakes
2: well, I think you're right. I think I, I left out the part that the kind of conversation I wanted were ones that had to do with race, racial injustice, inequities, You know, white privilege. Um, what what does that mean? What are people's understanding of whiteness in contemporary America? It's It's an attempt to have a conversation that goes beyond civility, goes beyond the sort of accepted norms about how we talk about these things. And that is the wild card. It leads to feelings of fragility and persecution and defensiveness. And so what happens once you get there, when you get into those areas, then what happens? What's next? And that's the place I wanted to stay and see what happened to me and what happened to you. Not you, you, but, <laughs> you, me, as, me. but well, you as a category of white man, you know.
1: Um, can we talk about the Plane essay? Sure, sure. So it ran in the New York Times Magazine. Uh, and the title there was, I wanted to know what white men thought about their privilege. So I asked. In the book, it's called Liminal Spaces. And I guess to start, what do you think of as a liminal space? What do you mean?
2: spaces are spaces that are in between. They're neither here nor there. They're a place where it's almost like a a waiting, a sense of non-activity space. And I love that idea for these conversations because I feel as if the feelings that are attached to these subjects live in liminal spaces they, you know, what's been surprising about our president is that he has removed the language that resided below the surface and put it out into public and social conversation and consequently armed people to feel like it's okay for them to be racist, in fact. And that has been interesting because we see now that the people who voted for him voted for that. Mm-hmm. That the kind of blatant racism, the agenda around white ownership of the United States, is what he ran on and what he's again trying to run on, but but he's it's not just him. You know, he has just made it public. These agendas have been around for as long as America has been around.
1: That's an idea that I feel like you keep returning to in the book too. Is that um, there's a, an essay on a dinner party in which you, people are talking about the 2016 election. And then you say essentially what you just did, which is that it was about the racist platform that he was running on. And the dinner party sort of, I don't know, deteriorates maybe is the right is the word to yeah, use. Yeah,
2: well, it certainly breaks down. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think my memory is right that you were the only black person there. This 2016 election conversation comes up. You say essentially what you just articulated to me, and then the host of the party turns to a platter of brownies on a silver tray and says, "Don't these brownies look delicious?" trying to end that conversation or at least divert it. Can you just walk me through what happened in your head in that moment and then and then what happened next?
2: Exactly. So, you know, this dinner party, I should say, is one that came about on a totally different issue. It was, you know, about something else. And we didn't really know each other. We were just brought together in terms of figuring out some logistics in our neighborhood. And it was going along in the same kind of, with all the niceties that usually come with these kinds of meetings where you don't really know anyone. And then at dinner, one of the guests was writing a book about the election and said that, you know, economic reasons landed us inside this administration. And I said, no, no, no. This guy ran on racism, exclusionary policies and nationalism. And the people who voted for him voted for that. And it wasn't the host, but it was a f- another woman, a white woman sitting across from me at the table who then turned to the dessert tray, which was filled with brownies, and said, oh, aren't these beautiful? Doesn't the dessert look delicious? And I then turned to her and said, are you silencing me? Is this an attempt to silence me? And everyone became, I don't know, it was like I had said, aren't you a doll, you know, Hitler (laughs) or something. The entire mood of the dinner party changed. She looked down into her hands, refused to look up. The, The host of the party was sitting next to me and there was no more discussion between us. It was really stunning. And my husband was also there and he leaned towards me and said, should we leave? (laughs) and i was like i don't know (laughs) what what should happen at this moment and and what's interesting to me in that essay is that it was in part was my own reaction to that because i then became very silent as a kind of silent protest (laughs) you know it was sort of like you're trying to silence me well i will be silent then and that to me in retrospect, was a little bit childish.
1: There's a moment in the essay where you can sort of see how it will play out before you say, are you silencing me? Mm -hmm. And that it's a choice. And you can anticipate, maybe not exactly, that she'll look at her hands and a silence will take over the room, but you know something like that will happen. And it's important to you to say it anyway.
2: Yeah, there's a a line of poetry that I've always been interested in, and it goes, will you have whatever it takes, this is a paraphrase, to bring the moment to its crisis. And so I knew I was doing that. You know, I knew that to say this thing was out of the bounds of civility. And I was interested in what everyone would do once that happened, including myself.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so it was an interesting moment. In a way, these conversations become like experiments in, in, and yeah. <laughs> in breaking the bounds of civility, yeah.
1: Well, it's interesting that you were saying that you were sort of, part of what you were thinking about afterwards was your own silence and that it felt childish, because it's almost like you had some sense of how other people would react, but maybe not a total sense of how you would react.
2: Mm-hmm, Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I did in the making of this book is I employed or, you know, approached a psychiatrist. And I said to her, I would like us to go through these essays and discuss why I did and said some of the things I did and said.
1: And then oftentimes, in a way that I actually can't remember from anything else I've read, you're in conversation with the people that you're writing about. So... You'll write an essay about your friend who has done something that hurt you, and then you'll show her the piece and then publish her response it's It's really powerful and I, I want to talk about the too, but the, the sort of desire to say the thing, which is also happening with the white guys on the plane mm-hmm. I went back and I listened to this interview you did with uh, Krista Tippett on on being uh, at the beginning of 2019. And there's this thing you said that uh, struck me and I just want to read it back to you and, and I wonder how it interacts with this thing that we're talking about, about just like saying the thing, which is, I think one thing I've learned in the last 10 years well, I had breast cancer and I think that really was a turning point and you realize, oh, you can just die anytime. So you might as well just speak your peace before it's rest in peace. And I was just, I was very struck by, when I heard that after reading the book and I wonder how much these conversations are born out of that experience.
2: You know, I definitely have had these conversations post having breast cancer. And so I think I learned something. I think anytime cancer comes into, or any kind of illness comes into your life, you understand that your life could be over at any point. And then I began to wonder, why am I maintaining civility around things that actually are very important to me? You know, this might be the only chance I get to stand up for myself as Claudia, as a Black person, as a Black woman, as an American citizen. So what am I waiting for? What am I preserving when the thing that I supposedly am preserving is also the thing that is on some level killing me. And so at least I feel, maybe it's an illusion, but I feel like I'm no longer in collusion with the arguments that denigrate me. <laughs>
1: so what what happens when you do that? What happens when you say the thing to a white guy sitting in first class
2: well i I think it depends on who the guy is. I think it um, one of the things that the essay tries to show us is that different guys go different ways, and the final guy in that essay is someone who. I felt I could talk to. And so we did talk a lot on the plane. And afterwards, he did get in touch with me because I'm not hard to find. And, you know, he said, you know, you and your husband should get together with me and my wife. And, and then we didn't because of this and that. But then when the essay was going to be published in The New York Times, I felt like I need to share this with him. I don't want a private conversation to go public without his knowing as a kind of acknowledgement of my respect for him. I really liked him. He was a nice man. And so when I sent it to him, I, you know, I said, if there's anything that you think misrepresents our conversation, let me know. And also, if you would like to write a response, also feel free to do that. And, um, you know, it didn't run with the New York Times article, but his response is in the book. And since then, we have gotten together a number of times. Well, not a number of times. We got together once, (laughs) once, but we've communicated a number Mm
1: -hmm. of times. The premise of that essay, just so people have it, it was born out of this uh, experience you were having where white men kept stepping in front of you in line for boarding because it hadn't occurred to them that you could also be sitting in the front of the plane.
2: Yes. I mean, those are some of the interactions that happen where white men have this belief that only they are in first class. And in fact, the majority of first class are usually white men. But it's so ingrained in them that they will literally stand, you know, walk in front of you (laughs) on a line where the sign says, this is the line for first class. I mean, it's actually funny
1: because it's so stunning. We're jumping around a little bit, but in that last conversation, when you did get that response from him, was that the first time you thought about including responses in the book in the way that you did?
2: Yes, the book is something that was very organic. I didn't have a plan or a blueprint of like, I'm going to do this, this and this. First, I, I thought my students are always interviewing their family members who are white or their sweetmates mates who are white. So maybe I am going to do what they do. I'm going to interview white men about their own privilege. And then when the piece was going to run in the the New York Times, I then I was just like, I don't want to insult this guy. I don't want to think about him opening the, the paper and reading our conversation. So I contacted him and asked him. And but then that became the blueprint for the rest of the book. But when I wrote the piece for the New York Times, I didn't realize that this was going to be the next book. It was a piece I was writing for The Times. Mm -hmm. But then I think what starts happening is the mode of inquiry in the initial piece was so deep, you know, psychologically for me, that the next time I had a conversation where I felt tripped up again in terms of talking about race, I then felt like, oh, wait, this conversation, I could do the same thing I did with that. And so then I wrote out the conversation. I bring the conversation to the therapist, etc.
1: When you say you were in a conversation that in which you felt tripped up, can you help me understand what you mean by that?
2: Well, I think often in talking about race, I don't expect the response I get. Uh, we talked earlier about pushing a moment to its crisis, but I had no idea, for example, in the dinner party with the brownies, that she would do that. I didn't know she was gonna turn to the Brownies when she thought we'd had enough of a conversation about the presidential election. So that was a kind of rerouting in me. And once she did it, I felt like I was being called to name what was happening and then make a choice about what I would do next. And in real time, I wasn't thinking about the essay at all. (laughs) I I was thinking about what, you know, like, what are you doing? I'm speaking over here, lady. You know, (laughs) that's what I was thinking. But then in retrospect, as I, days later, I'm still thinking about that moment, thinking about the entire landscape of that conversation. Then at that point, I write it down. At that point, I think, okay, this might be like that other essay. Mm-hmm. And what if I do the same things I did to that other essay, to this essay?
1: So from a process standpoint, it's like um, when things linger, like when, when things mm-hmm. are still with you two or three or four or five days later, then you're sort of... Then I'm, your, then, you're, then, yeah. you're, <laughs> then I'm in. Then you're in. Then I'm in. Those moments, the uh, the tripped up moments... Was there something that you wanted to to learn from them? Or was it something that you wanted other people to learn?
2: Well, when I'm having the conversation, I'm not thinking about other people, right? I'm just in the conversation. And so the desire to keep the conversation going is something I felt I needed to do. I didn't want to reroute this kind of discussion because I feel, you know, with these white people, let's say those white people at that dinner party... I felt like there's something I need you to understand. I'm not leaving this. But then afterwards, I really was interested in creating a kind of diagram of that conversation to understand what I did, what I was needing, why I was saying what I was doing, why I was willing to push things the way I did, and why and how... The response came from others and so you know I wish I could say oh yeah I was I had you in mind the entire time but I didn't I literally am flummoxed by white people inability to see certain things and to accept certain things and I understand that we are living very different lives but I don't understand how all the history and learning and conversations that have carried us through our lives allow us, you know, I'm almost 60, allow us still to not see the same things when they seem so obvious. You know, if somebody shoots a man in the back seven times, The man is not attacking them because they are shooting him in the back. That seems like something a 10-year-old, a seven-year-old could understand. And why then grown, I'm not going to say grown ass people, but grown people will then turn to me and say, well, you don't really know what happened. I'm like, but we have, we're looking at the same video. This is, this is why I think black people erupted into protests when Rodney King was beaten and um, when so many others have been killed. It's because we're looking at the same document and you're still hearing a justification for the killing of black people.
1: Did writing this book, did compiling this book and having these conversations, did it help you understand how people could look at something that indisputable and see something else? Are you less flummoxed?
2: (laughs) I mean, certainly I've had some really interesting conversations. You know, one conversation I had, it's not in the book because I had it recently, had to do with Amy Cooper. And you know, my thing was Amy Cooper pretended to be afraid. And she says over and over again, I was afraid, I was afraid. And that's why I needed to call the police on Christian Cooper. But then, you know, you look at the video and you're like, if I am afraid, my reaction is to flee to leave, not to approach the person I am afraid of and say, can you put away your phone? I don't want you, you know, in fact, do keep your phone going. Do videotape what's happening. (laughs) I would like a record of this, but goodbye. Goodbye and good luck with that. But that's not what happened. What we had was a white woman who said to a man, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them that you have threatened me. And then when she goes to call the police, Max, she does an incredible thing. She says, excuse me. She literally says to him, excuse me, and then turns around and takes out her phone to call the police. And I find that like a stunning moment in the video.
1: Wait, wait, wait. Why is that such a stunning moment to you?
2: Because it, employing the tools of civility in a moment where she's also saying, I'm going to create a lie that could lead to your death. But excuse me while I do it. (laughs) You know, that's kind of interesting. But I bring it up because, you know, when I talked to um, this therapist that I, I got to think about these essays, I said to her, why does she keep saying that she's afraid? And the therapist said, because even though she has created a fiction, that doesn't mean she doesn't believe in the fiction. So one can be motivated by a fiction and then take it on as reality. And that's the part that I never really understood. Like, I thought that the sense of creating a lie is a lie. And you know it's a lie, and I know it's a lie, but you know that this justice system will support that lie so you tell it but when you go and have dinner with your friend like you know she says you cannot believe what i got away with today but in fact my my therapist was saying no she'll say i was threatened by it you know and that now is the new reality Mm -hmm. and so that's an interesting it's created a new sort of um ripple in my thinking around the behavior of white people that the lies actually are realities for them.
1: Yeah, what do you do with that?
2: You die. That's what that's what you do with it. You die because I think, you know, when you think about something like the Central Park jogger case. Those boys were sent to prison for years because Linda Fierstein convinced the police officers the jury, the judge of things that did not happen. None of it happened. And yet all of those white people were willing to accept that those boys raped and brutalized that woman. You know, So I think because of systemic racism, especially in the justice system, the fictions can be realities. And that's what's tragic about anti-Blackness in this country, that, you know, there's, on every level, whiteness has supported these fictions. I mean, Amy Cooper, i you know how many people said to me, I can't believe Amy Cooper lost her job. I'm like, this woman called the police on a Black man, and within 24 hours another black man was killed. Floyd, he was choked. He was choked. And so we understand that if Chauvin has the ability to choke a man to death, and he is the police, he is the authority, that's what she was calling into play. And not only was she calling it into play, she was creating a narrative where she was the white woman victim of the black man and needed to be rescued by the white police force. So, you know, that's how it works. That's the narrative we had for Emma Till. That's the narrative we had in Tulsa. That's the narrative we had in Scottsboro Boys. And it's still playing as effectively as it did a century ago.
1: Maybe this is a moment to talk about how it feels for you putting this book out in the world now when this all feels uh, unchanged. And yet I think for many people, race in America feels different. We're talking on September 1st, 2020, it feels different on September 1st than it did on May 1st or April 1st, or or mm-hmm. when you finished the book. And I wonder how you're feeling about that, about how you're feeling about how Just Us enters this conversation?
2: Well, I think Just Us enters the conversation as a conversation. I, I, You know, I think in some ways, I'm excited about this moment as a time when I could have a conversation without battling for a shared reality. I, I think that this is a moment where Justice can begin its conversation in a way. What do you mean? Well, I think because um, I feel like part of what happens in the book is a desire for people to see the thing I'm seeing. And suddenly I feel like at least some of us are seeing the same thing. And so now that we're seeing the same thing, is it possible to talk about it, to understand the historical structures that remain in place that keep these things happening? You know, when we say systemic, how, what does that mean? How did that get put in place?
1: To you, how is that manifested, that more people are seeing what you see? How do you know that's true? What does that look like?
2: It looks like a diverse protest. It looks like Black Lives Matter and Say Her Name and Surge showing up for racial justice. The organizational work that they have done over the years coming together so that people are out on the streets in the same moment in response to the same killings. For the first time, I've seen women, white women my age out on the street. We saw what happened in Portland with um, the Portland moms going out and saying, enough of this. And so that's a different landscape than I have ever seen in my entire life in the United States. When the women's march happened after the election, one of the things that struck me was for the first time, I felt like white women were beginning to understand their impact and power, and also their collusion with this system. And they were saying that the part of the system that doesn't support Women, we object to that. I was not sure if those same women would show up for immigrants or undocumented people. And then we saw them showing up for that. And then I wasn't sure they would show up for the killing of Black people by police and the over-policing and the racial profiling. And this summer was amazing to see everybody out there.
1: How did it make you feel?
2: Like we could now start having a conversation (laughs) about these very issues. Because the fact that we are protesting the issues doesn't change the system, doesn't change the habits, doesn't change the fantasies. So if we can say, okay, I see these things happening, how can we take it apart? What's the history that led us here? What's the vocabulary that could maybe name these tendencies? That's the conversation I think justice is asking us to begin to have. You know, a lot of people are understanding that nationalism is alive and well in this society. And, um... And Justice us is saying, "Look, here's some pictures from last year <laughs> of Nazi signs being burned in your neighborhood. What do you think about that? Should we talk about this?
1: Is it surprising to you what's happened this summer?
2: A little bit surprising, a little bit surprising. I, but I think it's, in a way, the pandemic allowed America to slow down and see itself. You know, suddenly we were all at home. There was nowhere to go. There was no plane to catch. There was no child to pick up because your child was at home with you. There was no um, train to catch, to commute back from the suburbs or into the city or whatever anyone was doing at once time. There were no parties to go to, no concerts to attend. And so people were home. And so when things began to happen, Everybody could pay attention. Everybody could take in the full impact of it. And it was amazing. It was amazing to see the response.
1: I guess emotionally, personally, I just wonder what that's been like.
2: Well, it's a tricky thing because in order for them to see it, it meant that more people had to die. And the debts were everywhere. They were, because of COVID, you know, we know the numbers have affected more African-Americans than other segments of the population given underlying conditions. And the underlying conditions are there because of the way in which the systemic racism has segregated people, uh, you know, all kinds of inequities and precarity within the African-American community. And so even as people were finally saying, oh, my God, that's not good. And that was nice to hear. It didn't stop all the deaths from happening. So there was a level of grieving for me personally that, was a kind of bittersweet moment during the protests, you know, because on the one hand, finally we have a national response. And and sure, we still have fifty percent of the population that thinks Trump should be president. But we had the other fifty percent finally showing up in public protests to say, you know, this is unacceptable. And so that seemed to move the needle a little bit. And um, we had suburban women. And that was interesting because those women are sort of an untapped resource in our voting public. And, And we see Trump trying to get them back. And so in many ways, that constituency is hugely important. So when I see them coming out in protests, it it gives me some hope that maybe we can shift the tide that seems to me moving towards a fascist regime that is interested in militarizing the police in service of white supremacist ideals.
1: It sounds to me like among many other feelings, including grief, you have landed in a place of maybe like cautious hope. Does that sound? Yeah, or- I,
2: I would say that. I would say cautious hope.
1: And does that feel different than when you finished the book a year ago?
2: Well, it it feels a little bit more possible than it did in... I mean, I think when I finished the book a year ago, I was calling for that. Yeah, I was asking for an examination of what it means to be a public in this country you know is it possible to have a public that includes me and you together as americans who who are on the same page about what we want for this country and what we need from this country and this summer i think i begin to see a building of a coalition that could include us and others in a commitment towards what a possible democracy that has a sense of equality built into it could look like. I know it's all provisional, so I can't say a direct thing, but no, no, I can say that. No, no, no no. That. <laughs> no, no, don't,
1: don't, uh, it, everything's provisional. But the, um, I think maybe part of the reason I asked was I, I was just really struck by the end of the book. And we haven't talked about some of the sort of like presentation and writing devices that are in there. There's sort of extensive footnotes throughout the book. There's lots and lots of visual elements on nearly every page. You fact check yourself throughout the book in a quite formal way. But there's a thing at the end of the book, the very end, the last line that I don't think I've ever seen before, which is uh, there's a last line of the book and and a footnote on the last line of the book, which is almost a second ending, But the last line, and this is the reason I wanted to ask, the last line, the the last poem is about what you're talking about, which is these huge questions about America and who is us and who is we and can there be one for all and all for one? Does that one exist? And then, you know, I think as a reader, you're sort of hoping for some prescription, some strategy. Mm -hmm. and Instead, what you write is that, and I think this is what the book is, is that you are open and looking for anything that can signal some path forward that whatever that strategy might be, any input that can help figure out what that is. And the last line is, tell me something, one thing, the thing, tell me that thing. And so when you when I hear you sound provisionally hopeful, I wondered, I guess, whether some version of that has happened.
2: The possibility of some version of that has
1: happened. <laughs> like seeing suburban suburban white women out, out in the streets is is a possibility of some version of that.
2: It is a possibility of some version of that. I mean, I I feel like, what was it, 97, 96% of Black women voted for Hillary Clinton, myself included. And clearly that was not enough. So it doesn't matter if every Black woman in the United States votes against Trump, it's not enough. We have to form coalitions Together, we have to speak to each other. We have to understand that to make space for me is actually to make space for you. The narrative that white people have been given is that if Black people are around, a thing is broken. If Black people are in your neighborhood, you have a broken neighborhood. If Black kids are in your school, you have a broken school. And so not only must you have white flight, you must also keep those people away from you and keep them out. And this is liberal Americans. So, you know, nobody wants to talk about the fact that inside we are as segregated as we have ever been in many ways. And the assumptions are, if I'm around you either need to help me or you need to get away from me. And what if my presence is really just the presence of another American who wants this country to be something that actually works for all of us? You know, and I I think Black women have been working as hard as they can to get this country to understand it is better together, <laughs> It sounds like a, you know, Kumbaya song, but it, it's true. I mean, if you're going to devastate the healthcare system because you don't want me to have a healthcare, then we get to a moment like this and everybody falls through. Everybody lands in a position of precarity. And one person in the executive office can determine mass death across the country. You know, there was an article that came out, I don't know if you noticed it, a few days ago about child mortality rates. I didn't see it. It's so stunning to me that I... I feel like I'm going to have to go back to the original research, but according to the article, it said that newborns are three times more likely to die if the attending physician is white. Now, isn't that stunning? What? Really? Yeah. Yeah three times more likely to die if the attending physician is white. And I believe it because when I got cancer, I went to the doctor who was a white man and I said, I think something is wrong. And he said, oh, no, you're fine. He did an examination. He was like, you're fine. Six months later, I went to a black doctor And I said, you know, I really think something is wrong. And she said, well, let's get some tests. So when I have that personal history and I read that article, suddenly that seems possible to me. And that's how the history of this country, if you start with the founding of the country to now, still determines... Who gets to live and who gets to die? And I'm not just talking about avert police shootings. I am talking about systemic racism. And so, you know, the protests are nice and they, they make me hopeful around the election. But in terms of the systemic racism in this country, we need to start figuring out why the things that happen happen. And we will only do that if all of us start talking about what it is we know. So, that's in a way the open endedness of the end of justice is about telling me that thing. Whatever that thing is, tell me what you know. Because there's so much that needs to be fixed, there's so much devastation in this country. And white people have turned their back on everybody else, Native Americans, undocumented people, Black people, for centuries. And so in as much as people are starting to say the thing, that's good. <laughs> and when it will then reform and reroute and reorganize the systems that govern us all, that's really when the change happens.
1: Claudia, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for doing this, for taking the time.
2: You're welcome.
1: I have, uh, I have, I have, an, I have a favor to ask, which is um, I was wondering if before uh, we actually go, you would read... Um, a poem you wrote this summer called The Weather. Would you do that?
2: You got it. Let me pull it up here. Okay, here we go. Weather. On a scrap of paper in the archive is written, I have forgotten my umbrella. Turns out in a pandemic, everyone, not just the philosopher, is without. We scramble in the drought of information held back by inside traders. Drop by drop, face covering, no, yes. Social distancing, six feet, under for underlying conditions, black, just us. And the blues kneeling on a neck with the full weight of a man in blue eight minutes and 46 seconds. In extremis, I can't breathe, gives way to asphyxiation, to giving up this world. And then mama, call to, a call to protest, fire, glass, say their names, say their names. White silence equals violence. The violence of again, a militarized police force, tear gassing, bullets ricochet and civil unrest, taking it, burning it down. Whatever contract keeps us social, compel us now. To disorder the disorder, peace, we're out. To repair the future, there's an umbrella by the door, not for yesterday. But for the weather that's here, I say weather, but I mean a form of governing that deals out death and names it living. I say weather, but I mean a November that won't be held off. This time, nothing, no one forgotten. We are here for the storm that's storming, because what's taken matters.
1: Claudia Rankin, thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Piper, And our intern for the last week is Julianne Parker. Julianne, thank you for everything. It was uh, wonderful having you as part of this project. It's also wonderful having MailChimp as part of this project. They've been supporting the show for years now. And if you'd like to listen to the podcast that Aaron and I did uh, over the summer with a slew of incredible authors, go check it out. It's called The Books That Changed Us. We did that as part of MailChimp's By the Books Festival. Uh, And speaking of books, Claudia Rankin, thanks so much to her for coming on the show. Her new book out yesterday is called Just Us. An American Conversation. The link is in the show notes. I recommend you buy it. We'll see you next week.